Hello and welcome back to the Next Stage podcast by Web Summit. My name is Luke and today we're taking you inside the minds of business and cultural leaders from around the globe. So sit back, relax and listen in. Hello and welcome to the Next Stage podcast with Web Summit. I'm Rob Pegarero. I'm a freelance technology journalist based just outside of Washington, D.C. in the United States of America. With me here is Jim Snob. Yeah, hi, my name is Tim Snab. Great to uh, be with you, Rob. Um, I am uh, the chairman of uh, Siemens and the chairman of AP Muller Mask. I'm a passionate technologist and uh, believe that we're at the edge of creating the, the technology companies of the future. We have a big chance to make a future that's significantly better than what we know today. Excellent. So decarbonization, that seems like a pretty good idea, although there's a certain... Uh, minority in the U.S. that would disagree with me on that. Digitalization seems good overall. How do the two intersect in this case? How does one drive the other forward? Well, I think in my perspective, those are the two uh, main drivers of transformation um, in general, not just, you could say, for our daily lives, but um, also for companies and and for society. Uh, Each one, I think, is dramatic in itself. but when you combine them, it's actually a, a kind of an inflection point that, that creates, I think, the future for, for all of us. Um, and, and they are, as you said, related. Um, I've, of course, spent a lot of time on, on decarbonization. Um, and I would say without a digitalization of the physical world that we know, it's really hard to do the uh, decarbonization um, because you need to know accurately, you know, where is the carbon actually being uh, um, uh, where is it coming from in the value chain? You need to optimize assets, etc., in order to reduce uh, the demand uh, for for fuels, etc. Um, and and that transparency can only come from technology. And at the same time, I, I guess the future factories are going to be, you know, data centers, uh, which of course use a lot of energy as well. So so Indeed. we decarbonization to happen there as well. So they are very intertwined, and and I think they drive basically uh, the future and, and where we're heading as, as, uh, as a planet. Now, a lot of people might hear that sort of thing and think, no, this is some more of this solutionism, technological utopianism. But I did read the uh, essay you wrote for the World Economic Forum denouncing the irresponsible use of technology undermining our societies and democracies. So I thought, well, first of all, let, let's talk about how we can try not try to avoid doing this wrong. What are the risks we face in this transition? Well, I mean, let me first say that I am um, actually, you know, a technologist, as I said in in the introduction. I'm also an optimist. I I think we have this unique moment in history where we have so powerful technologies that we can solve most of the problems that humanity uh, has. Uh, So in that sense, I'm, I'm optimistic. But I am concerned in the sense that you, we should drive and decide what we want to use technology for and not let technology decide where we uh, end up, so to say. I, I remember I was at the Olympics in, in London in 2012 and, and, and during the um, opening uh, ceremony, they showed how the UK transformed from a you know, farming yes. country to an industrial com- com- uh, country. That was great. And then they showed how it turned into a digital. And the digital version was people dancing. And I go, wow, is that where we're going? Like pure entertainment? Where's the value going to come from? Where's the you know, money going to come from? How do we afford this? Um, 
And so it made me really think that while we do have enormous technology capabilities, we should not just use it for entertainment um, and certainly not steal people's uh, data and privacies and, and, and challenge democracies, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. But, but what if we could solve the real problems of this world? You know, we need to transform energy systems, transportation systems, manufacturing systems, etc. Um, I think that's where I'm, I'm getting at. So, so we should decide what we want to use technology for, which problems do we want to solve with technology and not the other way around. We have some technology and then we try and see what can we use that for. Indeed. So let's talk in, in more concrete terms about how this is working at the two companies you chair, Siemens and Maersk. Yeah, well, I mean, both of them uh, are, of course, um, in the physical world. I, I actually grew up in the digital world. I was a co-CEO of SAP. I spent most of my career at SAP. So, so I learned, let's say, the digital world uh, first and joined uh, Siemens and Maersk um, and, and was actually impressed with the capability of such companies to master the physical world uh, at mask you know we move a million containers around every month um, and at siemens we change the transportation systems of the world the urban systems of the world the healthcare systems of the world so so really physical um, um uh, dimensions and and in both companies even if they're very different in nature and they they deal with different industries they both have these two big agenda points. How do we digitize that physical infrastructure, not to replace it, but to enhance it? And how do we create uh, those infrastructures in ways that are more sustainable uh, and, and, and have less uh, carbon uh, footprint? And, and that is, has been the transformation of both companies, basically making those infrastructures more relevant, more valuable, and more sustainable. And I should note a Siemens electric locomotive hauled my Amtrak train this morning. We did leave and arrive on time, so good job there. Uh, I think I think most people would would get that Siemens might have an easier job since it is more land-based transportation. But ships, there are these huge things that burn lots of uh, fossil fuels. And yet I understand uh, Maersk has a project to try to reduce the carbon footprint there as well in ways that haven't hasn't been done before. That is that is correct. It's one of the so-called difficult industries to decarbonize. Um, we've actually spent a lot of effort since 2008 to try and, and reduce the carbon footprint um, of the industry. We've reached 41% uh, reduction since 2008 per container move. So, and that was done basically by building larger vessels and by slow steaming, which is actually slowing down the, the speed of the vessel so it consumes less fuel. But, but now we've taken a bold um, and, and much more innovative approach and basically say, how do we reach zero carbon shipping and and that's a hard thing to do and i think we found a way now where we basically take um, um, green electricity from solar or wind we convert that to a green hydrogen and then we convert the hydrogen to a green fuel um, and and that fuel can be actually burned in combustion engines uh, we need to redo the combustion engines for that but it eventually it means that we can sail um, these millions of containers around the world um, with zero carbon footprint. Um, and we believe this is going to be a good business. It's not a bad business, you know, just for today's prices, um, a pair of sneakers transported, transported from Asia to the US with, with green fuel, which is twice the price of oil, um, would cost five cents more. 
So this is actually affordable and it's doable. And now we just have to do it much, much faster so that we get to uh, zero carbon shipping earlier than it planned. We are right now seven years ahead of the original plan. Uh, so we're doing well. That sounds like a, a good use case for this concept of digitalization. Since you walk through so many different supply chain factors, you want to know that at the end of the process, you haven't actually put more carbon into the, the ecosystem than you would have doing things the, the bad old way. Um, how is this, how much processing power are we talking about to sort of run the numbers on this project? Well, actually, the digitization comes in, you know, much earlier than that. So that's where now my Siemens hat comes on and says, well, first we need to produce green electricity. And when you increase the renewable energy share in a in energy system, you move from knowing when you produce electricity, which you do in, in normal um, uh, electricity uh, production systems, to renewable systems where produce energy when there's sun or wind. So you're out of control of that. You need to balance that out with when do I need electricity, which is AI coming in and actually making predictions on when do we cook our dinners, when do we charge our electric vehicles, etc. And And you need to balance the system out where you don't get the energy when you need it and you need to predict when, when you need it and then move the energy there or store it and, and release it a little bit later. And so that's where it starts. And so the renewable energy system cannot work unless you have a so-called smart grid, uh, which is where, where Siemens is, of course, you know, strong. We do the wind turbines at Siemens Energy. We do the smart grids, distribution of the energy. We do the storage of energy. And then we do the distribution in urban areas. Um, and, and so that's where it starts. And then, of course, you need it all the way through to the um, vessel, in this case, with mask where we have sensors on every single engine, we can see exactly how much consumption we have um, so that we can optimize the way we sail. Even if the fuel is green, we need to save it uh, so that we don't uh, need more electricity than, than necessary uh, to do this uh, journey. And one other thing I noticed in that World Economic Forum post was a, a bit on the importance of open standards for data exchange, which and timely enough bit of news, IBM announced just a few days ago they're working on their own suite of uh, energy measurement standards for use across the EU. How far along are we in, in allowing a company that, would say, wants to do business with Maersk or Siemens to get the data they want out of that so they can then try to reduce the carbon in their own operation and, and get some sort of – I hate to use the word synergy, but I just did. <laughs> well, I think this is an important point. If I look at – how we've digitized so far, I would argue that the first big wave of digitization was in the consumer world. And and so we've been basically trying to understand how consumers behave digitally, you know, where they're going, what their interests are, so that we could have an advertising uh, or persuasion business model um, associated with that. And And I think in the consumer world, you can kind of lure the data away from someone by offering an app for free uh, or some service for free. And then suddenly you can begin to mine all this data on consumers. And I believe, you know, going a little bit too far and actually um, trespassing what we normally would believe are, are reasonable privacy uh, um, protections uh, in the physical world. But but let's talk about that later. In, in yes. the industrial world, which I think is the next wave of digitization, it's very different. I mean, you can't lure the data away from a wind turbine just by offering the turbine a free app. 
you actually have to talk to the producer. And Siemens is advocating open standards for platforms so that the data we have on energy systems, on healthcare systems, on transportation systems, etc., is available for all. We can connect all types of robots or wind turbines. It's not like a monopoly uh, for whoever produced uh, whatever the, the car or the turbine, etc. And we can use this data to optimize energy systems or transportation systems or healthcare systems so that we can individualize healthcare and, and, and we can make these systems more sustainable. So, so that's the trend. And that's already the case today. If you, if you look at Siemens in a factory, for instance, we basically can simulate an entire factory before it's built. We can run the physical factory, even a though- digital twin. Exactly, there's a digital twin of the factory itself. There's a physical factory then, which is mimicked in a digital twin where you can simulate. The robots are not necessarily Siemens robots. They all connect into the same intelligent factory. And then the product is digitized as well. So we have a digital twin of the product. You design your car before you actually test drive it. You can virtually test drive it, which of course shrinks the development time of that car and makes it much better um, before the first version is physically uh, implemented. Um, and so all of this helps us reduce, of course, the um, resource consumption. It speeds up product development and allows this digital version of a physical world um, to happen in ways that allow us to optimize resource consumption, CO2 emissions, etc. So that's where we're going. And that's reality today. That openness exists already today. You mentioned persuasion, which is another thing I want to touch on. You've spent a lot of time speaking out, writing about this. And certainly, I mentioned here in the United States, that there are a lot of people who've made it part of their personal political brand to think that climate change isn't really happening and there's nothing we have to do. What have you learned about trying to persuade the, I don't want to say the unpersuadable, the persuasion resistant? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think the fundamental issue here is that, um, I mean, in the past, we would have extreme opinions. And uh, we would also have, um, you know, not truthful statements. And, and they wouldn't be necessarily amplified. You know, people would just not listen to it. Um, and we would actually have conversations where, you know, someone has opinion A and someone else has a different opinion. And we would be interested to understand why do you think that? And, and let me understand your facts and have a debate so that we converge towards some kind of truth, um, even though we have different opinions when we start the conversation. I think the social media, the way they work today with these persuasion algorithms is that they actually separate those people. So we don't have this conversation anymore. You get into echo chambers where the people you interact with have kind of same opinions as you have, and then you amplify the extreme opinions, which means we suddenly don't know what to believe in anymore. We don't believe in the researchers who have, you know, facts. Um, some people don't believe in, you know, vaccines or we were, did we put a man on the moon? Another problem, yes. And, and I think that's a fundamental problem because if we really want to use technology to create a better future, trust is the ultimate currency. And we, we have to trust the technologies we put in play. And when the technologies do the opposite, they kind of challenge our democracies and they, you know, they challenge who we can believe in, then we dismantle the fundamentals of our, our democracy. So, so I'm like hoping that we can get these um, persuasion algorithms to work. It's fine that you want to persuade someone to like your product, but 
let's bring people together. The, the original idea of the Internet was actually to bring people closer together, not further away from each other. And, and so that's what I'm advocating. And I think then, I mean, there was just a report done. The IPCC report came out a couple of weeks ago, which um, researchers from all over the world, uh, like 14,000 uh, research documents used in, in that report. And it says very clearly climate change is happening much faster than we had expected. Um, the impacts are more severe than we had expected. It's getting last moment to do something. And, and the only real good news is that there is enough evidence now that it is human uh, cost. And, and why is that a good news? Because then we can actually do something about it as humans. And that's what I'm advocating. We have the technologies to do that. We need the leadership. We don't need to debate it anymore. We need to get going. We need to do something. So on that front, since I am from uh, just across the Potomac River from D.C., what sort of government measures would you like to see happening in the U.S. and across the Atlantic that would get us further along this journey? I think the first one is actually to try and, and use technology, as I said, to bring people together and have debates again and then begin to converge around not just a, a debating or, or throwing stuff at each other, but, but finding solutions. My experience now, looking at it from Siemens um, and, and Mask, I mean, Siemens is a portfolio of, you know, heavy duty stuff. We do factories, as I said, we help manufacture things. We make trains, electric trains, like the one you tried. We, we make urban areas. Um, and, and so we actually influenced this and, and we made a commitment to carbon neutrality in uh, 2015, one of the first industrial uh, companies who did that. Oh, it was early on. It was. And, and 2020, we could already prove a 54% reduction of CO2 emissions. And the good news is that that portfolio of our, uh, say, products that actually help customers become um, carbon neutral is uh, around 34% of our total revenue. So, so this thing is no longer about how do we spend some of the money that we earned on doing good for the world. No, this is about how we make our money. This is about selling products, an electric train that helps commute people more efficiently. We can optimize the train network so that we need less trains, which is less material. And of course, we can make the train sustainable. Um, and, and so suddenly we help solve a problem and make a business out of solving that problem. Uh, so that's where I think it's going. Now, what can policy makers do? I think the action will come from business. You know, we are the ones that invest in these uh, technologies and the innovations. But policymakers can do two things in my mind. First of all, they can put a price on CO2. The moment you do that, the business case for sustainable solutions becomes even more attractive. Um, so this will accelerate that investment in innovation for sustainable solutions because you want to avoid a costly CO2 um, expense. And secondly, of course, they can invest in the infrastructures of the future. And I think COVID has uh, now put a lot of um, recovery funds in play. And I'm hoping that they will be dedicated to two topics, digitization and decarbonization, which were the two topics you mentioned at the beginning. In Europe, there's 750 billion euros now dedicated for those two topics. And that's what I'm hoping will happen all over the world. This will dramatically accelerate innovation uh, along these lines and allow us to create a, a more sustainable future faster.
you mentioned social media here in the U.S. People talk a lot about big tech, although I sort of hate the phrase. Here we're talking more about what uh, I guess you might not like this phrase, old tech companies that have helped the world industrialize that have been around for not just years, but decades or even centuries. What's what's their lane relative to big and small new tech companies, you know, without all this experience? Well, I um, that's a great question. Actually. I I know we talk about big tech, and I guess that's because they've grown big in, in, in their platform uh, approach. Um, I talk more about virtual tech, which is companies that are only operating in the virtual world. And then kind of reality check uh, or tech, sorry, reality tech is the companies that have a physical dimension that they add a digital dimension to. And Siemens and Mask, they represent that you know, reality tech type company. I think they will be, the companies that master both will be the future tech companies. Um, Tesla is a good example. It's it's a hardware company with a very strong software dimension that enhances the hardware as you go along. And and and, and I believe that the, the fight now in the next phase will be those who, who will first master the combination of hardware and software. And that will be, tech companies of the future. And that's why you see some of the virtual tech companies investing in getting into the physical world. And of course, Siemens, a reality tech company, moving into the software world. Actually, if we were just measured on our, on our software business, we would be among the 10 largest software companies in the world today. But we want to make the combination. How can our, our listeners and viewers uh, check for themselves check for themselves that your companies are, are living up to these goals and, and making this progress we've outlined here? Well, I mean, we, of course, report, um, first of all, our own uh, footprint and, and progress. Um, and so both uh, Siemens and Mask have a, a substantial effort in trying not just to report our, our financial performance, but also our performance when it comes to how do we contribute to society at large, and in particular, um, how do we um, help solve the climate uh, challenge um, and I think a trend is now happening. I saw a commitment from uh, the roundtable in, in the U.S. Um, around metric to show the uh, impact, for instance, on climate and, and social. Um, and I'm part of the World Economic Forum where, where there's also an effort to try and standardize that. I believe we'll have an, an integrated report on performance where it's not only about the performance towards shareholders but to stakeholders at large. And, and that's how I would, um, you know, I think um, everyone can contribute to this. Um, companies, first of all, we talked about how governments can help accelerate this, but even consumers, um, you know, I, I'm on my third electric car and it's just a fantastic experience. And, and when we make our choices, of course, if we know what is the footprint of this product, how much material is in this product, we can make more, you know, better choices as consumers. And this will drive uh, the transformation. So look us up, we have the facts, uh, and we, both companies, have taken a lead in trying to decarbonize and innovate uh, for growth and a better future. So early on in this, you were saying you're an optimist, and yet we've had a lot of kind of pessimistic stuff, the problem of social media dividing us, misinformation, we're running rampant, the, the climate crisis we have to do something about. So Remind me, why should we be optimistic about this again? Well, I guess I'm a, a concerned optimist. <laughs> We've heard the concern, but I am fundamentally an optimist. I think we have this unique moment in history where we have these 
super powerful technologies that can create a, a much better future. We can become much more relevant. We can become much more um, focused. We can create value chains that are more sustainable. And I, I think we have this enormous opportunity. The technology is there. Uh, so I think what we need is, is really leadership, leadership to decide where do we want to go with this technology and how fast can we get there? I hope, I'm hoping, and that's why I'm optimistic, that we can get there much faster than anyone predicts. That's good. Concerned optimist. That's a good job description. I like it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to and watching the Next Stage podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more about these topics firsthand, or you want to let us know what you want to hear, be sure to check us out on any of our social media accounts or visit websummit.com. That's websummit.com.